You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and of course, I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is every single week, the one, the only, the brilliant Christy Morris. Hello. Excited to be back. Talk about some more nerdy stuff. Yeah. I'm here with my uh, WandaVision red hair. I love it. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. You look great. And this is funny because worlds are colliding for me because my co-host from Owlpost is going to be joining us. Welcome back, Drea. It's been way too long. Hi. Yes, I'm so happy to be here, especially because I do love me some callbacks to 70s, 80s here. Even this is not technically an 80s movie. I sort of categorize it as such. So um, oh. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be a ton of fun. Before we uh, get to talking about uh, our show tonight, we're going to be looking at J.J. Abrams' Super 8. Um, but before we do that, want to remind you right now, we do have a contest going. So if you're following us on Twitter, so you just need to make sure you hit the little follow button, um, you will be entered to win the new version that's coming out of Batman v Superman 4K. Uh, it's remastered version. It's going to be really exciting. So that's coming out. We would love to give it to you for free. So uh, the only thing is um, we can only send it to somebody who's in the United States. So uh, I wish, you know, we could just send it to anywhere, uh, but we can't. Um, so follow us on Twitter. Uh, of course, you can find us on Twitter at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. You can find us online at trek.fm we've also of course got uh, our presence on facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm the listeners only discussion group called the babel conference you can go to trek.fm slash contact and send us an email if you'd like we'd love to have that and of course um you know make sure you're subscribed to the show so you get it uh, as soon as it drops anywhere you're getting your podcasts and if you're on apple podcasts give us a star rating review let people know what you think of the show and then uh last but not least we want to say a huge thank you we've got some associate producers here Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Dana Noah. They've been supporting the show for a long time through Patreon, as well as the entire network. And so uh, if you like what we do here on TFM uh, and you want to make sure that everything we do keeps coming to you, make sure you go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can support the network and be part of our team. We've got some great contribution levels. And in the end, really, uh, every little bit helps. So again, that's patreon.com slash track fm so drea you alluded to this with this movie that this movie is an homage to the 80s as well as the 70s because the movie takes place in the 70s and yet in many ways this feels like one of the 80s movies made by spielberg and so um, I first just wanted to kind of ask you guys before we kind of got into a little bit of history as to why that's the case how you guys just feel about movies, especially more recent films that are kind of harkening back or trying to feel like a movie that would have come out at a different time. I think when they are done well, the movies and the shows, because when my husband and I rewatched this, you know, we had a couple of, if you like this, then moments. Um, this reminds me of, I think if you like, if they do it well, it's enjoyable. I think when they try to cut corners or just throw too much in there it gets to be campy um i think this one walked a good line that it it didn't it didn't try too hard and i and i liked it yeah i think you're hitting it right on the head of what i thought as well where there's these little nods to it rather than throwing a ton of references all in your face at once so you know for example with 
one kid's uh, older sister, she had the Farrah Fawcett hair. <laughs> and the like tied up shirt. For sure. Yeah. 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 The Duke's a hazard uh, look. So, you know, it was like the style. Yeah. Yeah. The styling was a, a good way of showcasing that. And then music here and there, you know, like with Heart of Glass playing in the background um, and, you know, My Sharona. Yeah. Um, but never anything that was too over the top and making it um, just full of references rather than its own story. Yeah, I mean, he opens a, co- a original Coke bottle at some point, which is kind of still how it looks today. Uh, when they go back really near the end, um, you know, he pops open a Coke at someone random person's house, right? And it's that old 70s style Coke that people go out of their way to find nowadays. Um, you know, like that too. It just, it was the thing on the counter that he just picked it up and drank it. So that was what was around. So a couple things here and there mm-hmm. remind you that you're really in the 70s, but um, yeah, not not anything where I was like, oh, how do we get it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting because I do feel like, and I almost, this movie seems to be in some ways really a resurgence of that because, you know, after this, we're going to get things like Stranger Things, right? Which this feels like the grandfather of, yes. you know, mm-hmm. um, it, in, in many ways, Stranger Things owes a lot to this being successful and um, I, I think you're both really onto something. You know, it, it regardless of whether you're using nostalgia to tell a story, if you're doing it well, then it's not a crutch. I think always the danger is is does it become a crutch to tell your story? And I think that that's um, that's really interesting. And and you know, part of this is that. Uh, and I found really fascinating watching some of the behind the scenes extras and everything. And, you know, Abrams, like Spielberg, grew up making home movies. Spielberg was using the eight millimeter and, you know, Spielberg grew up making Super 8 films. And so they share a lot of similarities in the sense of how they became filmmakers. So it makes sense to me that he would be kind of drawn to making a film based on what influenced him the most, which is Steven Spielberg's sensibilities. Um, And strangely enough, you know, uh, as he was getting older and in school and everything, his friend, Matt Reeves, who, if you know, is a a director in his own right, fantastic director, um, you know, worked on the last two Planet of the Apes movies. He's doing the Batman right now. Uh, And you say that again, just like that. Yeah, the Batman. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> nice. Vengeance. Um, so they were actually hired to take Spielberg's eight millimeter films and uh, get them all cleaned up because of work that they had done on Super Eight movies. And Spielberg had seen the article and hired had them hired to clean up his films. And so when you come into this movie, it just kind of makes sense that we start with this idea of making a movie. I mean, basically, we're making a movie about the childhood of Spielberg and, you know, J.J. Uh, Abrams, with a which is really, really mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, with the supernatural, um, which, again, makes sense because, you know, um, look at all the Spielberg movies, right? I mean, this movie is basically like Close Encounters and E.T. had a baby. It wasn't even just that J.J. had similarities with Spielberg. It was also the cinematographer, Larry Fong, yep. who said that he apparently was one of J.J.'s neighbors uh, growing up that also made Super 8 movies. And Michael Giacchino, the composer, said he made Super 8 movies as a kid as well and then got into, you know, um, Spielberg's movies and John Williams' music, and that's what made him inspired to become a composer. So it's all of these guys that had the same kind of upbringing coming together to make a movie out of love makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, it leads me to two points. One, you nailed right there, Chrissy. There's something about when you do something you love and it's coming from a place of authenticity, it is so much more powerful as your end product, which I think is the result of all of this history we're getting in this film. Like This is a baby for them. This is a labor of love. They love it. Um, the other point, Matt, you made early that you know sometimes when you set something in a different time period, it becomes kind of like a crutch for the story. I think it wasn't a crutch, but I think it enabled them to do certain things in the story that it wouldn't have otherwise. Like in our day of cell phones and constant contact, so much of what happened here 
would not have happened, right? You would be able to track where Alice went. You'd be able to find when they sneak out of the house, right? They'd be able to digitally track who was at the train site. Like there's all kinds of things that are not possible as you get more and more modern. And so it really enables you to add simplistic elements back into a movie that become believable because that didn't exist back then, right? You you don't know those things. You you don't have mm-hmm. them. They're not things you can rely on. And so I was I remember watching it and being like, man, none of this would be possible today. Our cell phones dominate us so much. Um so I think in this case, even setting it in a different time period, not just because it's, you know, based on super eight and eight millimeter an eight millimeter film, but because of the generation, you had the ability to kind of tell the story of kids on their own adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is something to which just doesn't happen in, in our society with, you know, kids getting to roam around like this, you know, um, unless you live in a small town, right? You know, it, this this just doesn't happen. Um, and I think that, you know, whereas this was my childhood, you know, I grew I'm old enough that this was I mean, we could roam around all over the place, you know, uh, on our bikes and go down to the park and all that kind of stuff. And like, as long as we were home by the time the lights turned on, on the street, we were good, you know? So uh, this is a completely different time period that, like you said, Drea really allows you to do something. And I think it's interesting because, you know, Abrams had the whole idea of like, let's make this movie about kids making a movie basically. But to, to give it some more gravitas, one of the things he combined was the whole alien invasion, you know, uh, the train crash with something on it, which leads to the mystery then, which, you know, J.J. is so good with doing. He, he loves his mystery boxes here. Um, but I would personally say, and this is a question I had for you with the mystery box of the alien, I feel like this might be one of the few jj abrams movies where we truly unwrap the entire mystery box and get to see what the mystery is by the end you know whereas so many movies like i think of his mission impossible i still know know what the red foot is like it's just a thing that we're chasing that's terrible apparently you know uh in Mm -hmm. star trek i really don't understand red matter in his star trek you know um you know, so there's so many times that I don't really understand the things that we're going after, but here it just like it became like a big part of the movie. So I was just kind of wondering what you guys thought of that. Or lost, where we never know what's happening. <laughs> exactly. I was just thinking I, that. Yeah, exactly. No answers. Still, really, ever. no good answers except for it's purgatory. Uh, <laughs> and even that, it's like uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Um, I think this really starts JJ. I don't know. I like that he does sort of a scary mystery, right? Because I'm not a big cut him up and slice him up and scary death horror movie. I But I like the thriller component he's bringing to these stories, which is why other movies that are kind of like this are like Cloverfield. I also really did enjoy mm-hmm. the first one of those um, because there's this sort of element you don't know to be afraid you don't know enough it makes it gives you like a kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat and i think it's kind of the same here right you you if you pay close attention in the film you can get little snippets of what the alien looks like and, and what he's kind of doing but you don't really know until the very very end and then we kind of get this happy peaceful ending almost so I thought that it was interesting, though, then that the timeline of things was that Cloverfield came out, then we went to Super 8, and then to 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, and then, you know, he goes on to also produce on Cloverfield Paradox, and that they're all very similar stories, but that every time the monster is off to the side, the main meat of the story is actually about the people and how they react to the situation. And he even says in the extras for the film that he got this inspiration as well from seeing what Spielberg did with the family in E.T. That the movie was called E.T. and there was this whole visit from something from another planet, but that ultimately it started from being the story about the family. And we don't talk about Cloverfield Paradox, by the way. That movie did not exist. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it here <laughs> I on the show. That movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was a painful one to watch. Um, 
you know, I think that's an interesting thing because it does lead me into thinking about, you know, what this movie is about. You know, for Spielberg, E.T. was about a divorced family and Mm -hmm. what it meant to grow up, especially in that time period with a divorced family, regardless of when you grow up with a divorced family, being a child of having divorce happen, it doesn't get any easier for the kids. Um, and so this movie, though, I just thought was really fascinating because we're it is a movie about dealing with loss and letting go. And to me, you know, that's something that is really interesting because you don't expect that going in, obviously. You know, you don't expect um, there to be a, a story about like the loss of a family and the loss of, of um, you know, uh, jobs and the loss of dignity, you know, um, and, the, and the loss of, of even knowing what to do. And so to me, it was just really fascinating to kind of see how this story it plays out like differently than you would think. I mean, we even start the movie with this, you know, watching the number get changed, you know, at the plant, the steel plant. Um, mm-hmm. from, you know, having an accident in 700 some odd days to being back at zero, you know, and it's this, this massive loss for this family. And so, um, and, and then how to move forward, like how, how do we live in light of bad things happening? That's thought that, you know, there, that's a really deep subject for a monster movie, right? I feel like this is a story. It's a layered story, right? Because the kids are kind of having one experience and one dynamic. The adults are having one experience and one dynamic. And then there's a sort of like monster movie <laughs> element and dynamic too, right? And that that sci-fi element is really what brings all those pieces together and forces them to see how their relationships are impacting each other, right? You You have some kind of classic themes or typologies that have come you've almost got a romeo and juliet like or a west side story like relationship here between very innocent kids who clearly you know alice knows what's going on um but joe does not understand the whole picture um you've got the two angry dads and the loss of the mother you just have some really kind of classic relationship strains here that are played around in kind of a unique way at least for 10 years ago um but, you know, you, I don't know. I just think that that's totally right. We're talking about themes that are much deeper and darker than just a monster movie. But he doesn't, like, hit you over the head with them. You're not, you're not like, I get it. He's a drunk. <laughs> Let's move on, right? Like, he does it in a way that you know and appreciate what's happening there. But you're not um, overwhelmed. Like, the dad gets angry and doesn't want to hug the son. But it's not, like, something that's so obvious that you're like, okay, we get it. He's a man from the seventies and doesn't express emotion. Right. And he, you know, those moments still have an impact near the end without them being heavy handed. Yeah. I'm with you on that for sure. Drea. I feel like the scene that really hit me with the meaning of that, you know, loss to their family was when he sees his dad crying in the bathroom and his dad closes the door. That is a real honest moment where a kid for the first time is realizing that their parents are just the same as them, you know, that we all have our moments of weakness and that his dad is going through just as much loss as he is losing his mom. Um, And so I love that they have the, these moments where it feels like JJ plans to take a beat and really let you soak in everything that's happening. Um, and I, I'm so glad that this was a theme because if you think about like what the parameters might be of a monster attack or an alien attack, people would be losing family members possibly. And so I, I like that then there's more focus on the minutia of what could possibly happen, um, even though we wouldn't consider it minutia if we were in the midst of it. Yeah, I, I think you hit on something that's really interesting Christy, I think this may be, and I'm glad you pointed this out because I didn't even think about this until you said it. This is one of the very few J.J. Abrams movies where there are quiet moments and people aren't just running and sweating all the time. This is one of the few moments Mm -hmm. where he's really allowing his characters to have a moment. And like you said, just kind of sit with it. And um, I think the movie is all the better for it. 
that he's not just making these characters run around like chickens with their heads cut off, but no, we're actually going to deal with the emotional weight of what these people are going through. And so that when we get to the point where Joel, um, where Joe is able to say to the alien, bad things happen, but you can still live, you know, um, that we can find a way to take that pain and move forward. And that when used correctly, that pain helps us then not to become more inward focused, become more outward focused, become not more selfish, but less selfish. Because the the alleviation of this type of pain, of a loss of a family member or a friend or anything like that, is a reconnection with community, not a negation of that. And I think, Mm -hmm. to me, that's something that's really special with the film, is that you know we're 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 going to have that conversation but then we're also going to show that these characters all kind of come to those that realization in different ways right um you know i think it's one of the reasons why you know obviously joe escapes into his friends relationships um and making this movie and everything is because he wants to be away from the pain of, you know, losing his mom. And he's a kind of even willing to be put up with somebody kind of not necessarily always treating him well. Um, because he still doesn't really have to deal with the fact that he lost his mom, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. so I just, and then of course, you know, you add, you know, the Alice dynamic into that for him and his, good friend Charles and the whole change in like hormones <laughs> for boys mm-hmm. where they start to like girls and how that can hurt a relationship. And yet, well, what do we see them do? They end up talking about that. Right. And, and Charles has a loss, right? He loses the opportunity to be with the girl he likes, but he gives it up and he stays connected in his community with his friend. Like, It's just there's a lot more nuance here that I think people give it credit for. Um, And honestly, I think this is one of the very few J.J. Abrams movies that really does that well. Um, I think a lot of his movies really suffer from just going too fast. And Mm -hmm. this movie doesn't do that, and it's all the better for it. It's really a movie about, I mean, Super 8 honestly is about how do you recover from loss, right? How do you, the stages of grief, essentially, right? That's, a, that's the whole thing because the monster is at a loss. He's not in his home. He's lost his ability to go to, back to where his home is and he's suffering, right? E- everyone along the way had a journey of suffering and handled it differently from the military guy, Nem, Nemlek. Oh, Nelik. Nelik, thank Nelik. you. Yeah. Nelik, yeah. who, you know, has sort of lost control of what's happening here, but instead of accepting it, it sort of continues to battle against it and live in denial about it, right? If you look through the movie, each stage of grief is sort of addressed. And at the end, everyone kind of comes to that acceptance and moving on stage. Um, and I, I think that's really what the movie is about. Or, or they're dead. <laughs> or they're dead. <laughs> Which is acceptance wow. of its own sort. <laughs> it's true. It's um, pretty final. <laughs> yeah. You really don't have a choice from there. Um, nope. But yeah, I think that's a big part of this movie. And it's a big part of the story he's telling um, is just about stages of grief which honestly in today's day and age we can probably all relate to on some level we've all lost something um be it vacation or freedom or you know the the ability to connect with our loved ones or our loved ones so i think this is a a good Mm -hmm. time to be talking about it because i think it's a theme we all could use today we could all we could all use a little hope at the end of the tunnel even if it's an alien taking off on our water tower (laughs) (laughs) definitely You know, I I think that you really hit the nail on the head talking about how the movie itself represents the stages of grief, because you do see that, you know, especially in the final moment when he finally lets go of his mom's necklace. I thought that was such a beautiful touch to add that they didn't need to, but it just really, you know, put the last little cherry on top. The nail in the Uh, the sign. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that it's, 
it it is fascinating how they combine that with the story of the monster and that the monster even has a story like that but um that they tell it in pieces you know that their their um science teacher tells them a little bit and then they find his films and then they you know see the military guys and get caught by them and then uh, eventually meet the alien itself um and i thought it was really interesting that they added the piece about how the alien as soon as it touched a person could communicate with them and it was like they had this understanding i th- i thought that was interesting and and maybe also a call back to et and close encounters and contact <laughs> yeah and i like i like when the movie and it's becoming a little bit of a trope so don't all filmmakers rush out and make a, you know, listen to us and make a movie like this. But I always like when what you think should be the traditional bad guy is actually just misunderstood. And like the monster isn't mm-hmm. actually the bad guy. He kills very few people in the actual story. Um, it, it actually turns out to be the government that are the bad people in this case. Right. Like, um, but yeah, I think it, it's always interesting when the thing you're meant to fear and sort of, quiver in front of is not actually the thing you should be afraid of mm-hmm. yeah i mean he plays definitely into that whole idea you know because definitely an 80s thing or or in 70s thing where the government's bad right yeah. um and so mm-hmm. uh, but i do think that you guys talked about this idea of creating fear was really interesting because you know um the whole movie is about how this alien has been taught to hate and to fear us and our interactions with it because of the tests we've done on it because we we wouldn't help it to to just it just wants to get home it crashed here on accident and it just wants to get home um it doesn't want to do any of these things it's just trying to live and but it was also really fascinating to me because creating fear and or hate we kind of see the way in which that also is mirrored with the dads and them trying to perpetuate their hate onto their kids as Mm -hmm. to how they should feel about somebody else based off of something else that happened right you know and exactly Mm -hmm. and so i really think that there's 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 two different layers to the discussion but they're both pointing to the fact that it's it is our fear to which creates the perpetuation of more fear. And the best way to alleviate fear is communication. And, yep. you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, we, we've got Jackson, the deputy played by, you know, um, Kyle Chandler, he can't find a way to communicate with his son how he's feeling and what's going on because he doesn't even understand himself you know he's lost his wife and he just has no idea to handle this and try to raise a son at the same time like you know he's just not prepared and the same way the government wasn't prepared to have an alien land in its backyard not sure what to do with it um and of course scared of it as well so it's just like i think it's such a great discussion and it's a great picture of that, again, talking and and communicating is really the key to overcoming the fears to which so many of us have, which we find out in the film aren't necessarily justified. And that sometimes it's a 50-50 shot, right, of when Joe decides to have some faith that maybe the alien is not going to kill him and try to communicate. Because that's the other step, you know, you have all of this fear that you're then trying to overcome and trust that something bad's not going to happen. And sometimes you just have to take a leap of faith and hope for the best. (laughs) I think that communication is a theme J.J. Abrams plays with a lot across his kind of, you know, 2000s, his early aughts into the the kind of 2010s. I mean, we always joke that Lost in our house is actually the island of non-communication like if if people talk to (laughs) each other that entire show would not need to exist um and so i think you know he starts to kind of dabble in that here like you guys have already highlighted um so yeah i think i think it's true you know we fear what we don't know and instead of taking trusting other people and trusting the good and other people and other things and the process you know the more we fight it and sort of as matt highlighted earlier you know self-protect it actually is detrimental to our our village our tribe our society or whatever we find ourselves in um so yeah no 
I totally agree with all that. Well, and I do think it goes to show that just because, you know, look, her dad's not a great guy, right? He's just not. Um, And in many ways, he is, I think, kind of, he does kind of blame a lot of other people for the choices that he's made. And so Jackson Lamb not wanting his son to hang out with him makes sense, right? His daughter is a different story. And and so to just paint with a broad brush to say that everybody from that family is not good and not worth hanging out with is too broad a brush. And I think the movie does a great job of then when you just cash dispersion on everyone with a super broad brush, you are doing a disservice to people and you're doing a disservice to yourself as well. Um, there are going to be people in our lives that, yeah, it, we legitimately probably shouldn't be friends with and hang out with because, honestly, they're just not going to be good people for us um, in our community, right? Like, it's just, that's okay to say, but we need to be very cautious and careful that we're not painting with a very broad brush when it comes to those type of things. Every individual needs to be judged on their own merit not any anything else and i think this movie kind of you know does a great job of of showing that um in a very small way and so it it's it's about not just letting your preconceptions about somebody be cast so far that they ruin pre they become preconceptions about everybody (laughs) well and to expand upon that too like to also not impart that on your kids like let them learn Mm -hmm. and grow and make those decisions themselves which is so hard to let them like look at that situation and say oh yeah sure you're probably gonna get hurt and mix up in a bad crowd but why don't you give it a shot right as a parent it makes me want to run for the hills but they kids they, they look they watch they see everything and they know so much more than we think they know but they're not they're not oblivious to us crying in the bathroom or, you know, creating prejudice mm-hmm. against other people for their actions. They just don't understand it. And so not allowing them to make that choice for themselves and learn those lessons themselves is just, we're taking that opportunity away from them. And that's just not fair. Um, mm-hmm. And in this case, the dad wasn't even giving him an opportunity to learn the full story about his mom. Right. Like that's just not fair. Um So, yeah, I mean, even expanding upon that further, it's not even just what we do for ourselves in our community, but how our children respond to the situations as well. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, we we have an opportunity and almost an obligation to let them learn things the hard way and to support them and be there for them when they, you know, inadvertently, accidentally find out that they've just been hanging out with the town drunk. Well, and too, like, I, you know, I I agree with what everything both of you just said. And I, I also saw in that, you know, um, Jackson Lamb was placing that blame of his wife's death then on that family as a whole and saying that it's their fault that she died almost. And and then using that as the ammo to make his son not spend time with the daughter. Um, and so it's it's not fair from that aspect either. You know, you have to let kids make their own decisions, like you said, Drea, even though it's hard. <laughs> um and you and you feel like you can see the mistake coming and you just have to let it happen sometimes. Um, but it also to think about why you feel the way you do and not place that feeling on your kid when it has nothing to do with them and maybe isn't even true. You know, I mean, it, it was obvious once Alice talked about what really happened with Joe that Joe's mom was just a good person who picked up a shift for somebody that needed it. It was still an accident. Yeah. And that having some perspective that the other family is impacted too, right? Like Mm -hmm. it sucks that Joe and Jackson have to suffer without their mom, but this other family is also bearing this guilt that they don't even have an opportunity to like process through during this movie, right? Like Alice knows what her dad did and, and feels like she's got a stain on her and, you know, the dad can't even, the dad continues to drink and be a, seemingly terrible person um, because he can't even cope with the fact that his actions may have caused harm onto like this woman who's painted to be a very kind and generous person. Um, It's just, it's a self-perpetuating bad situation, right? Like nobody got 
out of mm-hmm. it until they the two dads finally got in the car with a mutual objective to save their kids and they finally said you know hey man like i am so sorry and he goes you know what it was an accident and until that i, I took like two freaking words like two freaking sentences and they could move on um if they'd done that a year ago or six months ago i don't remember the the time passage from the mom's death to later in the story um but had they been able to do that sooner they could have gotten so much back in their lives and their relationships could be so much different than they were so mm-hmm. well and i think that you know goes the whole thing that it w- is really beautiful of them coming to forgiveness right you know there's a there is a need for jackson to forgive this guy because it is partially his fault right like he he was drunk and therefore couldn't go to his shift at work and his wife took the shift because out of kindness and he is partially responsible um and and so uh to forgive him and say that it's not his fault that the accident happened though you know that's that's the thing that he that you he has to let go of and i think there is a beauty because in dealing with loss there does have to be a time when like you were talking about drea coming to acceptance and even in forgiveness many times it comes down to being able to accept i can't change what the person did to me but i can either continue the bitterness or i can um let it go and what's beautiful about the movie is it gives them the opportunity to be at this point where they both need each other they're both worried about their children and they realize that this gulf between them isn't really worth holding on to, especially when they're at the place where they may actually lose the thing that's dearest to them in the world at this point. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting because in many ways, the whole movie is a train crash metaphor. What happens when your life just completely is wrecked? And how do you find a way to move past that? You know, I mean, their lives are look like this train wreck. And the aftermath of it, everything is just strewn everywhere. And how do you begin to pick up the pieces of your life? Well, one of the best ways to do that is to forgive and to let go. Um, Forgiveness, and I mean, it's been in psychological studies that shows how forgiveness is overwhelmingly beneficial to you as a person um, for every way, shape, and form, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, forgiveness is the way to go, folks. <laughs> like um and I think it's beautiful that this movie helps us see that um because if you just keep holding on to bitterness, you're basically just continuing to kick the trash from the crash all over the place instead of picking it up and finding a way to put things back together. I think that's totally exactly what the movie is your life's a train wreck what do you do right everything's off derailed Mm -hmm. and a fiery crash and this evil monster is emerged into your life called grief and what do you do what do you do about it you guys win for the really great metaphors (laughs) 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 you know i didn't even think about it from that perspective matt until you said that that's a really really great descriptor of, of the whole thing um but yeah, I think that it's it does show 100% that if you don't let go and forgive, what is your life going to be? And, you know, I, I keep coming back to that line that Joe says to the alien as well of you can still live like you mentioned earlier, Matt. Um, you know, yes, those people are gone, but you're still here. So what mm-hmm. are you going to do with that? Um, and so that that's definitely what I took from it. And, and, you know, then combines with Joe finally having to let go of the sadness about his mom and accept that. Um, well, and I think one of the things that really helps in that, you know, Abrams really wanted fresh faces for the kids. He didn't want kids that had been behind the camera a lot. He wanted kids that were going to be much more normal. Um, they talk about extensively in the extras about the search. And he was like, I'm pretty sure we saw like 2 billion people 
he was like, the best part about making the calls was just realizing that I didn't have to search for kids anymore. <laughs> you know, like it was <laughs> apparently really arduous in finding the right kids for this. But, you know, and I think, you know, Christy, all the way back when we first talked about the original season of Stranger Things, we talked about the really importance of finding the right kids. And I think in this movie, that's exactly what they did. Because if these kids don't work, this movie sucks. You know, like, mm-hmm. but these kids, just like those kids from Stranger Things, feel like they just stepped out of the 70s and and or those 80s movies. The dialogue is really great here. It feels like all of those Amblin movies. I mean, the potty mouth on these kids as well. It sounds like all those movies too, where they're cursing up a storm, like they're just normal people. And and so um, the, all of that feels real. But again, it, it really, to me, came down to the fact that, that Joel and Ellie, their scene in his bedroom is the best scene in the movie because she sells it and so does he. Uh, and in different ways, right? Like she has the emotional crying scene and he has that scene where he's just like, I'm just completely shocked by this whole conversation, <laughs> you know? It's like and his it's first so, honest moment yep. in the movie yeah. where you see so, him peeking out of this awkward, confident, uh, like lack of confidence kid, right? Yeah. Well, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I just feel like they really all work. I think, yeah. I think um, Fanning at the beginning, Elle Fanning, she felt a little stiff, kind of as we eased into the story, right? And I think it kind of worked because she was supposed to kind of be uncomfortable based on what she knew about Joe and things like that. Um, but I think I think I was worried up until probably the point where she wandered out of the crash site and was like, what's up, guys? Right? And has this sort of like deadpan response to what just happened. Um, and then I think she kind of came to life for me. Um, so, so to that point, I was a little nervous kind of until we were starting to get into the thick of it, that maybe she wasn't a great cast for it. And then I was like, Oh, nope. Taking that back. We're good. We're good. Um, and the kid they really picked as some of the support staff. Um, I think Martin was my favorite part of the movie, to be honest, just the random, hilarious quips that you'd get every just enough that they got you what you needed without being overkill too many more of those and they wouldn't have been funny anymore um but there was a few moments in that where you i just i thought he was gold i was like i like you buddy you're excellent was he the one that was throwing up all the time yeah and he always had something hilarious to say (laughs) about the situation and he had the leg and the bone sticking out yeah that one I love that he starts screaming before anything's happened yet. <laughs> yeah. Because this is going to hurt a lot. And he starts screaming and his friend's like, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think this for sure, Matt, like you said, it's like if, if the kids were not right, then it's a lot harder to make this movie work because they are what everything revolves around aside from the dads. Um, and I have to say, Ryan Lee is like my favorite kid because you know they picked him because he had a unique look at the time. Bless his heart, poor little blonde kid with his buck teeth. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it just works the same way that, you know... Um, Oh, gosh, what's his name from Pretty in Pink and all the other movies where he was cast as the nerd? No, not Ducky. The blonde. Oh, I know who you're talking about. I can't. uh, Is it? um, I I can't remember his name right now for some reason. So, yeah. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. But yeah, I I think that he and the jokes about him being uh, like a pyromaniac and he's like obsessed with fireworks, I think is really funny. Um, But I wish that they had had a little bit more involvement of each of the other kids family life because it's like you start to wonder if they have families what happened to their families i don't know but you only really get the story about three of the kids alice and the two boys that are best friends so that was one thing that i wish i had had a little more of but i mean you know Aside from that, really not much to gripe about. So kind of like when we move from season one to season two of Stranger Things and you realize Lucas yeah. has parents and a sister. Like you kind of saw the sister yeah. in the first season, but when a lot of that more becomes that they are a main part of it instead of just like yeah. support you know, the, for the, the story. The guy line. starts hitting on your mom, yeah. you know, from yeah. the pool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, exactly. No, I think that's astute. I think I felt that too. I didn't I didn't know that's what I was feeling, but I, I think you're you're right in feeling that they 
they felt like um a they felt like they were there to further a point for something else not to be their own character at times um but and, and it was weird to me that he ran off with the pyromania i mean i get why he ran off with the pyromaniac at the end but because we didn't really invest much in that character you almost didn't really care if he got caught and eaten you were almost like oh he's gonna get caught and eaten we don't know a lot about him he's like seamus and harry potter he's just good for blowing things up yeah <laughs> so it's like <laughs> and then he comes back and you're like hey you're, you're kind of <laughs> like you kind of don't care if he gets eaten at the end you're like oh it's a shame but at the same time you're like oh you're a red shirt sorry um right so <laughs> red shirt <laughs> wow. that was good so yeah i get it. i think if we had a little more investment in their life maybe we wouldn't quite feel that way and be like no please don't die run away um right so yeah but yeah i, I do agree with you um i was originally a little concerned about um Elle Fanning as Alice because she seems kind of wooden when you first meet her. But then she does actually really give a lot in the emotional scenes. And so I think she more than makes up for that in the rest of the movie. And I mean, you know, now we know, of course, she is Dakota Fanning's sister. Um, and I I think that she's going to do great in anything else she does. And I, I also really appreciated her, the way she showed up emotionally because it felt real and not just like an overly emotional woman in this, in the movie. Right. Which I think so often yeah. women kind of get typecast and have that trope of being the emotional one that even in that super powerful scene you referenced, Matt, like it still felt real. She wasn't like sobbing hysterically. Right. She just had those tears that she just couldn't fight anymore that came through with that guilt right and the burden she'd been carrying and i think it made it a real female character and not a caricature of a female character or what we want to believe they are like um so i also appreciated that she got to be that more authentic whole like person by the end of the movie and can I throw in one more thing about her? I thought it was so funny how they mention in the extras on the DVD um, that the scene where she has to bite his neck, that there's still just kids that are like, what is happening? Why do we have to do that? A girl's biting my neck. <laughs> and there's the weird it's little so red funny. lipstick that's like lip gloss sloppiness on his neck that any woman who had lip gloss in like the 80s or the 90s was like oh god i remember that it's awful it was so thick I know, like, gloopy and oh yeah, it was too real it was like that moment where you're like oh you even nailed that why you didn't mm -hmm. like your strawberry shortcake lip gloss uh, i think mine was the lip smackers <laughs> bubble gum thank you very much okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah he he was he even says uh you know off camera I, w I didn't know what to do because what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> she yeah. kind of didn't really know what to do either. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you awkward. even see, yeah, like you even see on screen that you could tell she's like, I'm coming in, and he's like, It's happening. <laughs> oh, God. It was scarier than happening? that they're actually being a real zombie. Uh, so. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so we did, you mentioned earlier, Christy, uh, about how Michael Giacchino has, you know, a, a big part of this as well, um, writing the music and has a familiarity with Super 8 movies, making them, of course, got into films and music because of somebody like John Williams and, you know, his work in Spielberg films. So what did you guys think of his score here? I thought it was good. I, you know, I, I don't find it quite as memorable as some of the other big scores that I love. Um, but I definitely think that he nails the super emotional moments. Um, and, and when I watched the extras and watched about how he came up with the themes for each of the characters, I thought especially the theme that he comes up with for Joe's mom is really sweet and definitely gets that feeling across. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it, it doesn't quite come back to mind as quickly for me as some of the other big scores I would think of with like Spielberg movies. Yeah, I didn't have a I didn't have a signs moment with it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, or even a close encounters moment. I don't have anything I take away and say that's memorable about the music or the score of this film. Um, but it also could have easily been we talked about it earlier, but 
very distracting and could have been very heavy handed in the, in the genre or I'm sorry, the decade that it's in. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was, it was good. It was what this film needed, but again, I agree. I don't think it was terribly memorable for me. I, yeah, I was obviously watched the movie and then I was listening to it today and, you know, I think I like his work and I, he's done like, I think of, you know, he did inside out, which is really memorable. Um, he's very good at that. You know, obviously I think his, uh, score for Abrams Star Trek, uh, is phenomenal. Uh, you know, so he has done the thing where he can do a theme that makes you feel like you're watching a Spielberg movie and, or, you know, George Lucas movie, but you're not, I think here, um, it's a little too understated for its own good as the score. And I think it needed a slightly more memorable theme that stuck out just a little bit more, not a ton, but just enough so that it was something that was more hummable, you know, that, and so, and something that made you recall it, right? Something you'd kind of hear it mm-hmm. or hear something like it and go, you Oh, that nice sounds look. like whatever. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't get that here. So yeah, I'm super interested then to hear where you guys land on your ratings for Super 8. I would give it, uh, honestly, a four and a half out of five um, film roles that need three days to develop. (laughs) Because that cracked me up. Because I remember when it was not possible to even get one hour photo developed. Uh, It was like a 24 hour process. So, um yeah, I think that this movie has so many great emotional moments um, and then also falls into my favorite genre of all time, which is, you know, sci-fi fantasy stuff. So uh, there's really not much I would change about it. I think, you know, of course, we agree on the music, but um, that one piece about adding a little more backstory for some of the kids. Um, otherwise, I'm really happy with it. We have it on Steelbook Blu-ray and I will be rewatching it over and over again. <laughs> I will go with um, four of those metal cubes and the locket oh, out yeah. of five. So like four plus a little out of five. Um, I agree. I think had there been maybe a more memorable music component or um, something that I could recall back to on a more regular basis, it would be closer to the five for me. Um, so it sits in the four because... You know, it's not the first one. Like, if I have to choose between reaching for this or the first seasons of Stranger Things, I'm going to reach for the first stra- season of Stranger Things. Hmm. It's really interesting because, you know, we talked about all the great themes in the movie. I think the performances are good. There is something intrinsic to this film to which I think is missing. As we were talking about the score, I was thinking about that, which is it's there's nothing entirely memorable about this film we you know when you put it all together it just more feels like it's there and it's not a bad film um but it doesn't set itself apart from i think the things that it's copying in enough of a way to make it feel truly something all on its own you know uh which i think is a detriment to the film in the end which is a problem with abrams in general you know um, I think that is just he Abrams has a problem with being original. Um, so, and I think the the issue here is that he's always copying something he likes. Um, and it's not a bad thing, but he he is never able to truly put enough of a spin on it completely to make it all his own. So. Um, I would say in the end for me, this is probably three and a half out of five lockets. Um, I am, this is a very, for me, that's not a bad rating. This is a really solid movie. It's a really enjoyable watch. It's a gorgeous movie. Like you said, Christy, Larry Fong shot this movie with him. You know, he's worked with Zack Snyder. His movies always look good. Um, you know, he did uh, BVS with him uh, as well as Sucker Punch. Just, he, he's an incredible cinematographer uh, does amazing work and so this film looks gorgeous um it is also a movie where um we literally end on a lens flare uh you know so yeah um you know and and that's just kind of um 
And that's kind of an Abrams trope, especially at this point in his career, um, that he luckily got away from a little bit. But there are a ton of lens flares in this movie. And after a while, it did get slightly mm-hmm. annoying to me that there were just so many, you know, sometimes three in one shot. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, bro, stop with the lens flare. <laughs> um, so, Take some anyway. lip gloss off. Exactly. <laughs> Take some it off, off. <laughs> um, Hey, it's supposed to feel uh, like a Super 8 movie. I guess. It's so funny you say that because when we started the movie, my husband and I sat down to watch it and he goes, I think there's something about this movie in lens flares. I don't remember. Let's just watch it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really funny that you call that out. Um, Well, it's exciting because we're at the part of the show where we give our recommendations for everybody. Uh, So I'm excited to hear what we're going to be recommending to the listeners of the 602 Club. So, Drea, what would you like to recommend to everybody this week? Um, so we've talked a lot about some obvious ones already. Um, so I'll go with one that was a, a little bit different and kind of played less on the the decade focused mystery story. Um, the Arrival. Oh, movie is amazing! It's a great movie, and it has some of that. Should we fear them? Should we not fear them? What's going to happen? Communication is big there. That's the whole point of the movie. Um, so, so similar and enough. And Amy Adams. And Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. Um, but yeah, if you if you like the kind of sci-fi element of this, I think you'd like The Arrival. It actually reminds me of when uh, Matt and I talked about Passengers, too, which is also really good. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not what I'm recommending. Uh, I actually, um, I mean, I would in addition to this, but the thing I wanted to recommend was actually something my husband and I watched on a whim on Hulu the other day, and that is a documentary film called Kid 90. I don't know if you guys have run across it, but it's actually um, directed by Soleil Moon Fry, who played Punky Brewster, you may remember. Uh, and it's actually real footage uh, that she filmed herself growing up um, of what it was like to be a child star and growing up with all of the other actors that were big in the 90s. So she was on a first name basis with Leonardo DiCaprio and talks about how um, Charlie Sheen was her first and all of these other interesting things that you're like, what? Like, she's just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to call Leo. So it's a fascinating thing and also a really... Um, emotional story because she knows a lot of people that ended up either passing away or committing suicide and learning how to deal with that. Um, So it's both a tearjerker and a really heartwarming thing. And so I I highly recommend watching kid 90 on Hulu. Nice. You know what? Uh, It's fun because HBO max decided to put all the Rocky movies on. And of course, Christy, we covered the first one and then, my wife mm-hmm. and I had wa- watched the second one, and I had still haven't seen three, four, five Rocky Balboa. So, uh, we watched three and four. I would highly recommend three. It's such a great follow up to the first two. Uh, four is terrible, um, so I'm not going to recommend that. But I would say, you know, the first three Rocky movies make such a great trilogy. Like, really, really good. Uh, I loved the way that three followed up the first two. So, absolutely. Now, of course, now on to five and then the rest of it. So, we'll see how that goes. And now I get the joke, you know, in Spaceballs where he's like, and now for a review of Rocky 5000, you know. So, it does (laughs) just kind of seem like they keep making them. But super uh, fun to be with you guys tonight. And so, Drea, you know, if anybody wants to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on, where can they find you? Sure, you can find uh, Matt and I talking about uh, Harry Potter chapter by chapter on the Owl Post on the Nerd Party Network. Um, you can find me on Twitter at PCFChick, or you can find me on Instagram at Drea Kaufman, and it's C-O-F-F-M-A-N. And uh, you can also find me, Christy Morris, uh, at Bespin Bell on Twitter and Instagram. And when I'm not here on the 602 Club, I do a show with my friend Amanda DeFonzo called Sabres and Spells. And we recently also went through WandaVision, um, but talked about it from a female and mental health perspective and those really deeper themes of the show. Um, And we're going to possibly next be talking about Labyrinth and NeverEnding Story. So stay tuned for that and check us out at Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network.
Uh, of course, you could find me here uh, also doing Snyder Cuts with John Mills uh, as we've been walking through everything Zack Snyder does uh, before Justice League. As this episode comes out, Justice League will be out. Uh, so make sure you check out. Uh, we're going to have a massive crossover episode of the 602 Club and Snyder Cuts as John and I are going to be welcoming Tristan Riddell to talk about the four-hour epic known as Zack Snyder's Justice League. So you can go back and listen to all the other episodes John and I did. That'd be fun. Um, I'll tease it here. We've got something else in the works for you guys. So just saying, just, just, just keep, yeah, little, little wink, wink, which doesn't really work because this is a podcast. Um, you can also uh, find me doing literary treks in the orb here. Both Chris Jones, as we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, as well as the books and the comics of Star Trek on those shows. Uh, and, of course, you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network, not only doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, where we only have five episodes left, but you can also find me doing aggressive negotiations with the aforementioned John Mills, where we're talking about Star Wars every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you're here. <laughs>